everybody welcome back to my channel thanks so much for tuning in if you're new here welcome and if you've been here before I hope you already know how much I love you I love interacting with you guys I love that you're a part of this family that I've built around me and just thank you so much for all your love and support my name is Dana Trippiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., most of the time. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. Before getting into today's episode, I did want to show off what shirt I'm wearing because I absolutely love it. Today, I'm wearing my Wounded Warrior shirt. I get these shirts from Wounded Warrior themselves. I actually worked with Wounded Warrior for a while and they're an amazing organization. So I was really happy to buy merchandise directly from the website and support the charity while I was at it. I'll post a link on this video that you can go and buy merch that supports the Wounded Warrior project if you're interested. And no, they're not sponsored. I'm not getting paid for this ad. They just did a lot of work for me and were very, very beneficial to me, so I do not feel bad plugging them on this episode. Today's episode is going to be an epic one because guess what? It is a woman. We love doing episodes about gangster women. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal minds of the past decade. A very strong-willed matriarch who allegedly helped organize her son's crimes, Ma Barker. Arizona Donnie Clark on October 8th, 1873, and she was born into a fairly poor family in Ash Grove, Missouri. I wonder if this is where they came up with the name for the girl on Grey's Anatomy, because I never heard the word Arizona being used as a name before, but this Arizona is pretty damn famous. So it's entirely possible that Shonda Rhimes was naming Arizona Roberts the headstrong pediatric surgeon of Gray Sloan after this woman. There's not a whole lot of information about her parents or her siblings, but the only certain information is that she was the daughter of John and Emmeline Clark. Emmeline's maiden name was Parker. And they come from Scotland and Ireland, respectively, which means that her father John is from Scotland and her mother Emmeline is from Ireland. They were a farming family, and even though it doesn't seem like they were extremely, extremely poor, they were definitely living with a modest income. Lower class for sure, but they were able to put food on the table. I wouldn't say like abject poverty. When she was young, her family called her Ari, and that ended up being her childhood nickname to everybody. As a kid, she took lessons and learned to play the fiddle pretty well, which is a completely random pastime, if you ask me. Like, who learns the fiddle? Maybe it was more popular back then, but I don't know anybody that knows how to play the fiddle. I think it's more like a violin, though. But anyways, her family couldn't be that poor if they're able to get her fiddle lessons. 
Clark had dark, perceptive eyes with a really bad temper, and she was also known for being a very headstrong and stubborn girl as a kid. One of the things that Arizona really loved to do was go to church with her parents and her siblings. She was very, very into religion, and she really enjoyed going to church every week. And in her spare time, she loved playing the fiddle and singing, so she was really into music. When Arizona was really young, she saw Jesse James and his gang riding through her hometown, and this created a huge thirst, and it pretty much serves as her catalyst for the life that she would build in the future. He grew up in the area, and she saw Jesse James who was the leader of the James Younger gang at the time, and his gang running their operations. She saw the stories in the newspapers, and this just created a huge curiosity in her that made her really intrigued and want to be involved and explore the gangster lifestyle. She devoured books about crimes committed by men like Jesse James, the Dillinger gang, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, Billy the Kid. So there's a lot of books that are romance novels that was like, oh, he's such a bad boy, but I love him so much anyway, and that's what I love about him. And she loved these books. And she loved to read any kind of newspaper or even like the E! News type of magazines. Any information that she could get about these famous gangsters, she loved it. When she grew up, she was known to have a very prominent nose, and a lot of people said that it looked like a hawk's beak. She had a rounded face that a lot of people would call doughy, and she was the last person that you would expect to hear was up to anything nefarious. She always walked around town in a day dress, and she had curly black hair, that just gave her the essence of a good old housewife who subserviently catered to her husband and children. You would never give her a second glance and wonder if she was a criminal. Fast forward to 1892, Clark got married to a man named George Barker, which is where the Barker in Ma Barker comes from. When she got married, Arizona was just shy of her 18th birthday, so she's really young when she got married. In my opinion, George Barker is a very weak man, and aside from George being a poor tenant farmer, he was still unable to quench his wife's childhood thirst and desire for this gangster lifestyle that she really wanted to create. Over the next decade, the couple had four sons. Herman in 1894, Lloyd in 1896, Arthur, who also came to be known as Doc in 1899, and Fred in 1902. By this time, the woman that was born as Arizona Clark had adopted the nickname Kate. I don't know how you get Kate from Arizona, but maybe she liked it, so people started calling her Kate. And she took her husband's last name, Barker, so now her new name is Kate Barker. The family kind of lacked standards for bringing their kids up, and it seemed like this was all because of Kate's ambitions. The kids went to school, but they were absolute terrors, and whenever any one of them would get in trouble, Kate would be there to fight on their behalf. She got into a big fight with a few judges, and would be on the brink of getting herself thrown in jail for contempt of court before she would turn on the waterworks and somehow convince every person in authority, from principal to police to judges, to let her children off with absolutely no punishment. This gave the kids a sense of untouchability. They were never punished for anything that they did wrong, 
So why would they stop doing things wrong? People in the town would call the boys the sons of Satan. They were bullies, and everybody in town hated them. Even though they went to church and Kate was very religious, she herself was a whiskey-chugging crazy lady that regularly berated and ridiculed her husband, George. She would absolutely rip him a new one, and she'd feel no remorse whatsoever. As far as the town's opinions on her son, she was known to say over and over again, if the good people of this town don't like my boys, then the good people know what they can do. And pretty much that means they can go F themselves. In 1904, the Barker family was driven out of Lawrence County by neighbors and police officers who could just not stand this family anymore. The family moved to Webb City, Missouri. So as the kids get older, they start to get into more and more trouble with the law. Her oldest son, Herman, was arrested in 1910 for highway robbery, and when he was getting away from the robbery, he ran a child over in the getaway car. Even with such a serious offense, he didn't get in any real trouble, and his feelings of untouchability just continued to grow. All four of Barker's sons were frequently ending up in jails and reformatories, and by the time Doc and Fred, the two youngest children, had reached adolescence, they were known in the entire system. Kate not only accepted this behavior, she seemed to encourage it. She would teach the boys about the art of thievery, and let them cut school whenever they wanted to, and they were able to run amok around town, and they just did what they wanted. Barker refused to correct her boys from any kind of misbehavior. This was because she had ambitions of being a gangster. So whenever anybody would try to correct her kids, including her husband, she would go absolutely wild. She would flip out on cops, judges, and her husband. Nobody was allowed to say a bad word to any one of her four sons. It got to the point that even police started avoiding them and they wouldn't arrest them because if they arrested one of the four boys, they would have to come into contact with Kate and nobody wanted to hear her mouth. So they kind of just let them do their thing. They let them commit their crimes and they didn't arrest them just to avoid Kate. The family moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1915. As soon as they moved there, George, her husband, decided that he was going to abandon Kate and the rest of his family because he was tired of the way that Kate treated him and he was tired of the way that Kate was raising the kids. He was also tired of having no say in the way that the kids were raised or anything about the family. Apparently, he took a really long time to think this through and he felt it was the best decision to leave because he just couldn't sit around and watch these kids get in trouble over and over again and have nothing to say about it. He didn't want to be a gangster. He didn't want people in jail, and whenever he would say, like, stop being an asshole, Kate would be all over his case. He got to the point where he felt like if he couldn't have a say, at least he could have his leave. A few years down the line, Things got a lot worse as Herman and his brothers started to engage in serious crimes. It's thought that during this time, they had committed a few robberies and maybe even a few murders. The brothers became the talk of the town, and that made them pretty attractive to other gangs in the area. They were scouted by the Central Park Gang, and they began working with them. 
The Central Park Gang would introduce them into major crime. They had done mostly small crimes and a big crime here and there, but the Central Park Gang was pulling off major crimes on a regular basis. They also started running with the Kimes Terrell Gang. Herman spent most of the 1920s robbing banks in Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri with the Kimes Terrell Gang. On August 28, 1927, Herman Barker pulled off a stick-up of a store in Newtown, Kansas, which led to a confrontation with the police that left one officer dead. Herman opened fire on all the cops that had come after him after the stick-up, and when he shot the cop that he shot, he struck him in the mouth, and the police officer died on the spot. Now the situation gets a lot more serious, because killing a cop, especially in public in front of a whole bunch of people, it's a huge offense, and you can't escape from it. You're going to jail for the rest of your life. He was just shooting it out with the police to try to get away. He really wasn't trying to kill anybody, but he ended up killing someone. The death of the cop terrified him, and he planned on fleeing. In the process of him trying to get away, he crashed his car into a roadblock, and he got seriously injured. He spent the night thinking about what to do next in order to avoid prosecution, and he came to the conclusion that the only option was to unalive himself. He really didn't have any other options if he didn't want to go to jail for the rest of his life. He was badly hurt, and he needed a hospital. But if he had gone to the hospital, he would have gotten arrested the minute he walked in. He wouldn't live long with the injuries that he suffered, and he had no interest in spending the rest of his life in jail. He turned the gun on himself, and he was found in the weeds on the outskirts of Wichita on August 29, 1927. Lloyd, Doc, and Fred were all imprisoned in different states by 1928. Fred was in Kansas State Penitentiary. He had been arrested and found guilty of burglary in 1927 after he robbed a bank in Winfield, Kansas in 1926, and he was arrested as soon as he left the bank. During his time in prison, he would meet somebody that would become a pretty big character in the entire family's story, Alvin Karpus. We're not going to talk about him right now, but remember the name because it's going to be coming up soon. Lloyd was in a federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. He was given a 25-year sentence after he was found guilty of a stick-up of a mail truck in Baxter Springs, Kansas on January 16, 1922. Doc was given his life sentence on August 25, 1921, and he was serving it at Oklahoma State Penitentiary. He was arrested after he and three other men killed a night watchman, Thomas Sherrill, who had caught them robbing a woman at a hospital construction site in Tulsa. Sherrill started opening fire on them, and he was killed in the return fire. Sherrill's family hired a private investigator, and he and another man, Volney Curley Davis, were arrested and found guilty of the murder. George was last seen as a happily married man living with his wife by 1928, and he seemed to be still happy even after the death of Herman and the imprisonment of all his sons. I don't think he was happy to see his son's lives play out that way, but he definitely wasn't about to get drugged back into the trenches. He was perfectly fine living his own life over there. The FBI claimed that George left Kate because she got lost in her own morals during her life, which kind of made sense. 
It was believed that Kate had been so fond of her dreams of overseeing a group of gangsters that it made her so desperate that she just didn't care what it took or what she or what anybody in her family went through to get there. She was only concerned with her dream coming true. So if her sons died, if she went to jail, literally nothing mattered other than getting the people around her to become famous criminals. It was also noted that George wasn't a criminal himself, but that didn't stop him from profiting from the spoils of his son's crimes. He would claim next of kin after their deaths and would reap any benefits that the state or anybody else would give. It seemed like a major point of contention in the family was that George absolutely refused to accept the wrongdoings of his sons and Kate was fully on board. And that had always been a problem in their marriage. It seems like that's what split them up and it still was a problem between them. But at this point, the sons are grown. There's really not much raising left to do. But it was always still a huge point of contention between the two and between the entire family. It became a lot more obvious that this point of contention still existed when their son Lloyd got arrested and his father was like, yeah, punish him, throw him in jail. Like, he needs to be punished. Everybody always lets him off for what he does and that's why he keeps doing crimes. Somebody needs to hold him accountable. And Kate's there like, oh, not my son, not my little boy. And she's doing everything she can to get him out of jail while George is sitting there like, no, don't get him out of jail. He needs to go to jail. He's not going to stop doing bad shit if he doesn't go to jail. And he needs to be held accountable and he needs to be punished. And Kate is all up in arms and she wants to see her son get out of jail. And it really doesn't matter to her what he did. Like, he could have done absolutely anything in the world, and she does not want to see him punished for it. The time between 1928 and 1930 is the absolute hardest time in Kate's life. It's really miserable for her, and she's experiencing pretty much the climax of what you would ever imagine as poverty. During this time, she lived in a shack that had a dirt floor. She has no husband. All of her sons are in jail. And aside from this shack with a dirt floor, she's homeless. She has nowhere to call home, and it's a long time that she's in this worst-case scenario. Living this way made Kate a little bit of a trollop, because she was just desperate for anything that would take her out of this dirt floor shack she's living in. She was willing to sleep with absolutely anybody to get out of the situation that she was in. By 1930, she met a very well-dressed, much older man who was also unemployed named Arthur Dunlop. I have no idea why she gets with this man because honestly, it makes her situation worse, not better. Arthur moved in to the dirt floor shack with her, and now there's two people living like animals instead of just one. While they lived together, she was described as his wife on the 1930 census in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Even though we don't have confirmation that any kind of wedding happened, it sure looks like it did. So now we get into the spring of 1931, and things are starting to look up for Kate. Something she didn't even consider happening for a really long time 
was her son Fred being released on parole. He was released in 1930, and now Fred is there with them. Her other son, Doc, was also paroled around this time. He was paroled 10 years after his initial arrest in 1921, having always maintained his innocence of the murder that he was convicted of in 1921. He was paroled on September 10, 1932. As soon as Fred got out of prison, he came home with his fellow prison inmate, Alvin Karpus, popularly known as Old Creepy. And together, they formed the Barker Karpus Gang, and they used Kate's shack as their hideout. On June 10th, 1931, Fred and Karpus were arrested for a burglary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Karpus paid restitution, and he was released from prison, and Fred didn't get any time at all for this burglary. Nobody died. They really didn't get that much money. This was honestly not that big of a deal, and police had way more serious things to worry about at the time, honestly. The gang began robbing banks starting in mid-1931. This is a dream come true for Kate. She can live vicariously through the exploits of her boys, and her long-term dreams are now coming true. Fred and Karpus started pulling off a string of burglaries of small banks in the area. Under this gang, Fred killed Arkansas Police Chief Manley Jackson on November 8, 1931. On December 19, 1931, a department store in West Plains, Missouri, was robbed by the Barker Carpus Gang. During the operation, they noticed that the town sheriff might have seen them, and they started to worry that he would pin these two for the crimes. The following day, they decided that they were going to kill the sheriff of the town. Sheriff C. Roy Kelly was murdered, and this would mark the beginning of the Carpus Barker Gang's pattern of excessive violence and senseless killing. They do not leave any loose ends, and they have no problem being ruthlessly violent and doing anything they had to do to be able to continue in their crime spree. With the killing of Sheriff Kelly, Kate was made the first female to ever be put on the FBI's most wanted list. Wanted posters were pasted everywhere, and the public was offered a $100 reward for the capture of old lady Ari Barker because she was seen as an accomplice and almost as a leader of this gang. And after this incident, as she had publicly become known as being intertwined with this gang, the gang members started to know her as Ma Barker, like pretty much saying she's the mom of the gang. Some of the posters featured just Ma Barker, but some of them also had a list of her accomplices. Arthur Doc Barker, Fred Barker, and Alvin Creepy Carpus were listed on this mugshot along with Ma, and their mugshots were pasted there too. The whole situation obviously leaves the Barker Carpus gang in serious need of relocation, and this is when Fred and Carpus are going to head to Chicago, and Ma and Dunlop are going to follow along. When Doc was paroled, this is the city that he met up with the rest of the family in. They stayed there for a short time, though. They didn't last long there, because Carpus did not want to work for Al Capone. And honestly, nobody was a criminal in Chicago if they weren't working for Capone. Since Carpus had no interest in that, the family started asking around town where they could relocate to next. They were told that St. Paul, Minnesota was a safe haven for wanted criminals, which every single one of them were, so it seemed like a really good place for them to head. Once they arrived in Minnesota, the gang started growing and advancing its operations. On March 29, 1932, 
Fred, Carpus, and three accomplices went for an operation to rob the Northwestern North Bank in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The robbery was successful, and they were able to make a clean getaway. The Barker Carpus gang escaped with over a quarter million dollars in cash and bonds, which would be equivalent to about $5.3 million now. So, by September of 1932, Arthur and Lloyd had also gotten released on parole for the murder sentence, and this happened during the time that the brothers were also free, so everybody is together. And now it is all hands on deck. Everybody is fully back, and they have more strength than ever. All family members are around now, and Ma Barker's dream of having a gang is being fulfilled, and she's able to oversee her son's crime operation. While the organization is growing and strengthening, one thing is always made sure to be kept intact, and that is the relevance and approval of Ma Barker in all of the operations. She didn't take part in the crimes, but she did have the last say and the go-ahead in all gang activities. Without wasting time, they started plotting their next bank robbery, and they planned it for December. And this was going to be the third robbery of a Northwestern National Bank in Minneapolis. The operation backfired this time, and it didn't go the way they planned it. Unlike all of their previous successful operations, this time there was a roadblock in place. And it resulted in a violent shootout with police. But the gang were still able to stand strong, and they managed to get away. This incident once again solidified their reputation as the most vicious gang in America. Because as of then, there was no gang that was having shootouts with the police. Any shootouts with the police always led to the person that was having the shootout dying. These guys are able to shoot it out with police and still get away. Every other gang plays it low, and they try to avoid police or official government at all costs. And this gang has now proved they'll go toe-to-toe with the cops. They don't care. Ma's second husband, Dunlop, was believed to have a loose mouth when he was drunk. He's the kind of person that would go around and tell secrets of the gang whenever he's drunk, he gets, like, way too loose. And because of this, nobody in the gang trusts him. Carpus even describes him as a pain in the ass. Honestly, Dunlop probably would have been killed a long time ago, but because he is Ma Barker's husband, everybody just kind of has to deal with it, but everybody hates him. Carpus later recounted that Dunlop was a mooch, and Barker would let him mooch off of her. While the gang was at one hideout, a resident recognized them from the true crime detective photos, and she alerted the authorities. However, the gang did have a police officer named Chief Brown, and he would help them with prior information. So he was constantly keeping them safe. And anytime the police were about to act on them, he would give them a heads up. Chief Brown was able to give the gang the tip that the police were coming for them after this person reported them, and he told them that they knew about their hideout, and they were able to quickly flee and did not get caught in this situation. This getaway was a really close call, and it had the gang thinking that it was probably Dunlop that got them caught. It probably was him that led somebody to recognize them. Dunlop was assassinated while the gang was on the move because they just could not deal with him running his mouth whenever he had a drink in him. Dunlop's naked body was discovered near Webster, Wisconsin, and he had a head wound from a single bullet. The gang being able to escape this close call cost Chief Brown a lot. Despite the lack of evidence that linked Chief Brown to the gang's escape, 
He was still demoted to detective, and ultimately, he would be fired from the police department altogether. Because the police believe there is no way the gang could have any idea that they were coming unless they had some kind of intel from the department. They started tracing Brown's movements, and even though they weren't able to gain any kind of evidence against them, it was enough for them to get rid of him. This was a turning point for the gang because now there's no one to give them any kind of tip if anybody is coming. That's a huge red flag for them because that's how they've been keeping safe all this time. The gang moved to Menominee, Wisconsin, and while they were there, Fred had Ma jumping from hotels and different hiding places because they were no longer certain whether any place was safe or not. Her children tried to keep their girlfriends away from her, both those that she didn't get along with and those that had learned too much about the gang's crimes. The FBI would continually say that Ma Barker would try to end any relationships that any of her sons had, so any other women that were in the gang or any girlfriends of any of her sons made every effort in the world to stay away from her. The gang continued their bank robbing activities until mid-1933 when they decided that robbing banks was getting a little bit too risky. They decided to delve into the field of kidnapping. Their graduation to more serious crime was mentored by Detective Brown, so he had lost his position at the police department but started working with the Carpus Barker gang pretty seriously. It's now 1933, and the gang is located in St. Paul, Minnesota. The first target of their new kidnapping scheme was William Hamm. They carried out the kidnapping on June 15, 1933, and they collected $100,000 in ransom. It only took four days for the ransom to be paid. After such a huge score, kidnapping became a lot more interesting to them than bank robbery, and they started to continue down that path. That doesn't mean that they stopped robbing banks altogether, though. The gang robbed the Stockyards National Bank in South St. Paul, Minnesota, and one cop, Leo Pavlock, was killed during this robbery, and a second lived through it, but he was permanently disabled. This happened in August of 1933, so it was after the ham kidnapping. In September of 1933, five members of the Barker Carpus gang robbed another bank, and Chicago policeman Miles A. Cunningham was killed in the robbery. So they're wiping out policemen left and right. The fastest way to make the police pursue you to death is to start killing cops, and this gang just isn't really smart enough to see that. In January of 1934, they kidnapped Edward Bremer, and they did it in broad daylight in St. Paul. So these guys are getting a lot more ballsy. They released him in February, and they were able to get a $200,000 ransom fee. These kidnappings are bringing way too much negative publicity, especially due to the recent kidnappings of Urschel and Lindbergh. And the fact that Bremer Jr. is a personal friend of President Roosevelt, and he mentioned what happened with the kidnapping in a fireside chat with him. If you watched my episode on Machine Gun Kelly, you know that around this time, there were other extremely highly publicized kidnappings that were going on. The Urschel kidnapping, which MGK himself pulled off, was done in July of 1933, and that had led to the highest ransom request in history. $200,000. Now, even though the Parker Carpus gang got a $200,000 ransom fee, they didn't do it until January of 1934, so they didn't get to get the honor of the highest public, you know, whatever, kidnapping 
Murphy. It's even thought that the Carpus Barker gang's kidnapping of Ham may have been an influential piece of the puzzle that was MGK. MGK was caught on September 26, 1933, but he had been influenced to start kidnapping by seeing previous successful kidnappings yield payouts without the kidnappers ever getting caught. And the ham kidnapping may have been one of those that made him make the move to kidnap Urschel in the first place. During this period, a new technology is being introduced. And this is fingerprint identification. And with this new technology, the FBI was able to prove the connection to the Barker Carpus gang and the William Ham kidnapping. After this kidnapping, the gang was starting to feel a lot of heat from FBI investigations and they decided to leave St. Paul because of it. While the kidnapping of Edward Bremer Jr. was successful, and it did net the gang a sizable ransom, it ultimately resulted in bringing down the full force of the FBI on them, and they decided to split up. Alvin Karpus was named public enemy number one, and was presumed to be the leader of the Karpus Barker gang. Members of the gang were starting to cross from country to country. Some of them were fleeing to Cuba. The ransom loot was passed back and forth as the gang started to look for ways to launder the ransom. They didn't want the cash itself to lead the FBI back to them. But Carpa started getting increasingly concerned that the ransom money was not being laundered correctly and that the FBI would use it to track any of them down. As a result, the gang soon returned to the United States, and they made their way to Lake Weir in Ocklawaha, Florida. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, said around this time that Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus gang was the most vicious, cold-blooded crew of murderers, kidnappers, and robbers in recent memory. Between 1930 and 1933, the gang was able to rake in over $3 million dollars which would be about $52.5 million if it was today. They had 25 members, and the Barker boys were always remaining in the center of the circle. And mind you, around this time, there is nobody to supply any kind of police information to the gang. Chief Brown is no longer a member of the police department, and he was the only way that they were able to be supplied information that let them stay on the run this long. They decided that the best move to make was to move to Chicago, because this gang loves to move around the United States. It's like their favorite thing. And when they got to Chicago, they would just rent apartments for Ma to stay in as they tried to launder the ransom money and keep themselves from being caught because of it. On March 20th, 1934, George Ziegler walked outside the Minerva Cafe in the mob-controlled Chicago suburb of Cicero, and he was shot in the face by a shotgun at close range. He was taken to the Francis E. Willard National Temperance Hospital, but he obviously died from his wounds. His body had been identified by fingerprints. George Ziegler's real name was Freddie Goetz. Goetz's expensive car was found in the Greater Grand Crossing Chicago area, and it was believed to have been abandoned there by his wife, Irene, 
who, along with Fred, was a wanted fugitive by the FBI. The culprit of Ziegler's murder was never discovered. The newspapers assumed that the Barker gang had murdered Goats rather than pay him his cut of the ransom money. In his memoirs, Alvin Karpus does insist that it was the Chicago outfit that was responsible for Ziegler's murder, but he also commented that Ziegler had been getting kind of gabby, and that his gabbing may have led the FBI to his fellow kidnappers. It is possible that the Chicago outfit did it, though, because Ziegler was a well-known member of the group that carried out the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Honestly, it sucks to say, but when you have so many people after you and you're mixed up in such bad shit that they can't figure out who killed you, maybe you had it coming. Doc Barker traveled to Chicago with the aspirations to organize his own criminal enterprise. But it didn't really work out for him because as soon as he arrived there, he was tracked down by the FBI and he was arrested on January 8th, 1935. Doc was eventually convicted of the kidnapping of Edward Bremer Jr. and sentenced to life in prison. Later that night, several associates of Russell Gibson were also apprehended. Gibson tried to fight it out with the police and he was wearing a bulletproof vest and was heavily armed. But during the shootout to apprehend these guys, Gibson was mortally wounded. After he was killed, the authorities searched the apartment and they found powerful firearms and huge amounts of ammunition. They also found a map of Florida with Lake Weir circled. The agents used this map to determine that this must have been the hideout of other gang members in Ocklawaha, Florida. So the FBI does a little research and they look at all the stuff that they found in Gibson's place and all the stuff they found in Doc's place. They do a little snooping and they find references and letters that are sent to Doc to Gator Joe, a local restaurant whose owners have a taste for gangsters, but not for cops. The gang had rented the property that was circled under the pseudonym Blackburn, and they claimed that they were a mother and son wanting to vacation in a country retreat. Agents quickly located the cottage hideout. In no time at all, they were able to verify the residence and also that Ma Barker and Fred were both there right now. So in short, it was this apprehension of Gibson and Doc and all of those other associates that led to the FBI finding Ma Barker and Fred. In the early hours of January 16, 1935, at around 5.30 in the morning, agents from the FBI surrounded the house at 13250 East Highway C-25. The FBI were not aware that Carpus and the other gang members had left three days before, and only Fred and Ma were left in the house. The house was approached by the agents and the agents demanded that Ma and Fred and whoever else is in this cottage surrender to them. About 15 minutes after the initial, hey, you gotta surrender, the FBI repeats the surrender command. And within a few minutes, they overhear a voice from the house saying, all right, go ahead. Now, the special agents, they interpret this to mean that the occupants are about to surrender. After only a moment or two, though, machine gun fire starts coming from the house, so that is not what they meant. The agents obviously retaliated, and they started throwing tear gas bombs and started shooting at them with rifles and machine guns, because why not? They're shooting at them. Soon enough, cars packed with high school students from Ocala 
a town that was about 20 miles north, arrived to witness the gunfight, and now there's an entire audience of people in the community that are just, like, watching what's going on. Which, if you ask me, is the stupidest thing you could possibly do. Like, you're risking yourself getting caught with a stray bullet. If you die because there's an active shooting going on between the FBI and some criminals, I'm not really gonna feel bad about your death. <laughs> After four hours of non-stop gunfire, the shooting stopped coming from inside the house. And the FBI didn't know why. Was it because they were dead? Are they pretending to be dead? Are they planning to surrender? Is this another setup? Like, what the hell is going on right now? So the agents stop shooting, and they just give it a little bit. They're like, all right, let's see what's going to happen here. So this is when the FBI makes the decision to call on Willie Woodbury, a local handyman. And he was ordered by the FBI to enter the house wearing a bulletproof vest. Woodbury agreed to go check on the status of Fred and Ma in the house as long as he was heavily equipped with a bulletproof vest and the FBI let him know, like, okay, we'll, we'll shoot if we need to. Don't worry about it. Why the hell the FBI had this poor handyman enter the house instead of one of their agents is, like, unfathomable to me. Can you freaking imagine that conversation? Oh yeah, we don't want to risk any of our agents. Shove mm, that dude into the house. I have a picture in my mind of like all these FBI agents curled up in the fetal position, sucking their thumbs, hiding behind the cars, and waiting to hear what happened with Woodbury. Like, what cowards. So Woodbury goes and enters the house because the FBI is asking him to, and when he enters the house, it takes him a little bit, but he does eventually find Ma and Fred. After he had confirmed, he announced to the FBI that Ma and Fred Barker were both dead, and that the big, bad, scary, tough agents were able to enter the house. Only after the handyman assured them that these scary, scary criminals were dead. What bitches. The bodies of Ma and Fred were discovered in the front bedroom. Ma appears to have died from a single bullet wound, whereas Fred's body was riddled with bullets. The FBI stated that in the house, they had a small arsenal, including two 45 caliber automatic pistols, two Thompson submachine guns, a 33 caliber Winchester rifle, a 380 caliber Colt automatic pistol, a Browning 12 gauge automatic shotgun, and a Remington 12 gauge pump shotgun. In addition to these weapons, obviously there's a shit ton of ammunition, automatic pistol clips, different machine guns, different drums for, you know, like those circle things, like the the circle things that used to go on, like those old timey guns, like on the bottom, those were found all over the place. There's just all kinds of shit that they're finding in this house. According to the FBI, a Tommy gun was discovered in Ma's hands when she died. According to other reports, though, this gun was discovered in between Ma and Fred's bodies. Their bodies were displayed in public before being stored unclaimed until October 1st, 1935, when relatives had them buried next to Herman Barker's body at William Timberhill Cemetery in Welch, Oklahoma. Not too long after the death of Ma and Fred, 
the FBI was able to track down Carpus in Atlantic City. When he was fleeing and trying to shoot his way out of the situation, his eight-month pregnant girlfriend, Dolores Delaney, was shot in the leg. He looks over and sees this, and he's like, oh my god, no, baby, but I'm out. So because he just abandons this girl, they were able to capture Dolores and arrest her. And they threw her in jail. When she gave birth to her baby, Carpus's parents adopted the baby. Hoover announced to the public that Carpus had sent word to the FBI that he planned to kill J. Edgar Hoover the way that Hoover had killed Ma and Fred. But Carpus was like, uh, nah bro, never said it, never happened, completely fabricated. As time went on, the FBI's public enemy list started to get shorter and shorter. He was the last one of four public enemies that had been left standing. John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson had all recently been killed by the FBI, and now he is their sole focus. So Hoover attends this Senate hearing, and the Senate absolutely dogs Hoover. And they're like, you can't capture anybody. Everybody that you get, they die. Like, when's the last time you've arrested somebody and they lived through the arrest? When's the last time you threw someone in jail? Hoover, you little loser. Like, they dogged this man. They shit all over him. And after he got out of this meeting, he vowed that he was going to arrest Carpus and he was going to do it live. Like, he was going to bring this man in alive. He was not going to let him die in the arrest. Later on, Carpus would tell people that... The most ridiculous story in the annals of crime is that Ma Barker was the mastermind behind the Carpus Barker gang. She wasn't a leader of criminals or even a criminal herself. He wrote a memoir, and in these memoirs, he wrote that she was just an older woman that the gang took care of. And they only took care of her because she was the mother of the core members of the group. So they took care of her but they never were led by her. He even went so far as to say that when they would plan these robberies or kidnappings or whatever crimes they were about to commit, they would send her to the movies and that she saw a lot of movies or that they would leave the house. Like they did not plan these crimes with her, around her. They hid everything from her. Historians theorize that Hoover made up the tale of Ma Barker and handed it out to the public in order to protect their reputation and their public image because he thought everybody was going to be really mad to find out that he killed this little 62-year-old innocent mother. I don't think she was so innocent. I think there's a reason that she was on the FBI's Most Wanted, but, you know, who the fuck am I? Carpus would be described by most people as the leader of the gang. People in the gang claimed that he had a photographic memory and he was really smart. He would be the brains of the operation and he would plan the heists and the kidnappings and all the logistics behind the crimes as well. On May 2nd, 1936, the FBI located him in New Orleans. They arrested Carpus with no issues, but again, Hoover was found to be lying about the details of the arrest. According to him, he grabbed Carpus before he got the chance to go and grab a gun that was in the backseat of the car. Unfortunately for him, the car that Carpus was driving was proven by the media to not have a backseat. So I don't know what, you know, backseat he was reaching into, but it seems like he was just trying to give himself a little clout. Carpus told the public 
that other agents grabbed him and that Hoover was given the all clear to approach him after he had already been detained. I kind of believe his version because Hoover was a bitch and I can totally see him hiding in the car until like it was safe and the coast was clear. Both tell the story the same about what happened next. Hoover told the other agents to cuff him but nobody thought to bring handcuffs. Nobody thought that they were going to be handcuffing somebody. They thought he was either going to get away or they were going to kill him. They ended up securing Carpus with one of the agent's neckties. The arrest of Carpus was a big one for Hoover. This arrest catapulted Hoover to instant fame. It was huge for him because the three people before Carpus had been killed by the FBI, not captured alive, and... That's why the Senate was shitting on him. He had a very bad reputation as somebody that didn't have the balls to actually arrest somebody. None of them went to jail. And the public laughed at Hoover as a bitch boy who hid behind his gun because he was too afraid to come face to face with any of the criminals that he was sent after. Now that he had caught a live one, he was a legend in the cop world. Carpus spent 26 years in Alcatraz where he worked in the bakery until the prison was closed down and he was sent to the McNeil Island Penitentiary. There, he met Charles Manson, and he taught Charles Manson how to play the guitar. He was released from prison in 1969 and deported to Canada, and he wrote his autobiography in Canada. In 1973, he moved to Spain, where he died on August 30th, 1979. The cause of his death is natural causes, although some people believe that it was a suicide. On January 13th, 1939, Arthur Doc Barker was shot and killed while trying to escape from Alcatraz. Lloyd Barker died in 1949. Surprisingly, it wasn't during a prison break or even at the hands of officers. His wife shot him dead in 1949. When he was paroled from prison, he joined the army. He worked as a cook in a POW camp at Fort Custer, Michigan during World War II. He received an honorable discharge and married his wife, Jenny Wynn, who was described as a skinny, hysterical divorcee. Lloyd was working as the assistant manager at a restaurant, but he got a call that his wife had passed out. He left work to go home and take care of her, and when he got home, she met him at the door and took his head off with a 20-gauge shotgun. She was put into the insane asylum, and she lived there for the rest of her life. Ma's son Fred died at the cabin with her on the lake, and Herman died from suicide way back when. Every member of the family, including George Herman, the boy's father who died in 1941 of natural causes, was dead. So what do you think about the Ma Barker story? Do you believe that she was the real brains of the operation and the mastermind behind the Barker Carpus gang? Or do you believe that all she did was act as a mother and maintain the mother-son relationship to the gang while they were traveling? Let me know in the comments below. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I will see you next week. Bye!